This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Governor Tony Evers says he won't sign a bill that would grant abortion exceptions for rape and incest, saying the state's 19th century ban is inherently flawed. Evers railed against Wisconsin's abortion ban during a Rotary Club of Milwaukee luncheon this afternoon. The governor's administration is in the midst of a lawsuit challenging the 1849 Wisconsin law that bans abortion. Evers' Republican challenger Tim Michaels switched positions on a law granting exceptions after the August primary. Michaels now supports a bill granting abortion exceptions for rape and incest. During today's event, Evers also touted increasing shared revenue as a top priority if re-elected in November. Shared revenue is the state program that provides money for local municipalities, a program that has faced slashed budgets for years. Evers is proposing increased shared revenue by 10% over the next two years, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. Evers and Michaels will go head-to-head in a debate this Friday, which will be live-streamed on WORT's live site, website and broadcast next Monday. It will be their first and only debate before the November election. A new report from the Education Law Center finds that Wisconsin school districts are burdened with $1.25 billion in special education costs beyond what is funded by the state. According to the Capital Times, Wisconsin currently reimburses only 30% of special education costs, leaving large gaps that must be filled through the redirection of general funds that would be otherwise used to support learning for all students. The new report finds that high-poverty districts bear the brunt of the burden, faced with upwards of $1,800 per pupil in unfunded special education costs, compared to the $1,200 in more affluent districts. Wisconsin State Superintendent Jill Underly wants to raise the reimbursement rate to 45% by 2024 and 60% by 2025, a budget request that Governor Evers has endorsed. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that toxic forever chemicals have been discovered in several fish species living in two popular lakes on the Wisconsin River. The State Department of Natural Resources and the Department of Health Services issued an advisory last Wednesday recommending limited consumption of fish from Castle Rock Lake and Lake Mohawkson. Fish sampled in March and April revealed elevated levels of PFOS, toxins known to cause cancer, liver damage, and other health complications. Officials warn that anglers should not consume bluegill, yellow perch, or black crappie from Castle Rock Lake more than once per week. Carp from the lake should also be consumed only once per month. Black crappie, pumpkin seed, and rock bass from Lake Mohawkson also should not be consumed more than once per month. The state of Wisconsin has issued PFAS consumption advisories for more than a dozen bodies of water across the state. Fitchburg City Council President and Alder Randy Udell announced he is running for mayor of the city, according to a press release distributed by his campaign. The news follows yesterday's announcement by the city's current mayor, Aaron Richardson, that he will not seek a third term. Richardson is running this fall as the Democratic nominee for state treasurer. Udell has served as the Fitchburg City Council president since 2020 and was re-elected to the position earlier this year. In addition to serving in his elected role as the Wisconsin Democratic Party treasurer, Udell has sat on a number of Fitchburg committees, including its Finance Committee, the Agriculture and Rural Affairs Committee, and the Healthy Neighborhood Advisory Committee. The nonpartisan mayoral election will take place in April of 2023. 
Yesterday, members of the bipartisan Wisconsin Elections Commission failed to reach an agreement regarding what to tell local election officials about how to handle poll watchers. The commission was split along party lines, reports the Associated Press. Republicans voted in favor of sending guidance to clerks that outlined state law, while Democrats opposed the proposal on the basis that the wording misrepresented the laws currently on the books and would add unnecessary confusion directly ahead of the election. This latest stalemate comes less than a month following the commission's vote to review and update election observer laws. Madison Mayor Rhodes Conway unveiled her 2023 operating budget proposal today, which includes expanded funding for the city's alternative emergency response program known as CARES. According to WISC-TV, the budget, which will be introduced to the Madison Common Council tonight, proposes substantial increases to the police and fire departments. Also new to the budget is the Madison Customer Assistance Program, which would provide financial assistance to low-income households to help cover the costs of municipal services bills such as utilities. Last year, $13 million of the city budget was funded by the American Rescue Plan Act. This year, city revenue has increased by 14% and the property tax levy will increase by 5.5%, helping to cover costs. The 2023 operating budget exceeds last year's by $21.6 million. And now on to today's top stories. The site of the San Damiano Friary in Monona has a storied history. It was an encampment site for the Ho-Chunk Nation and was more recently used by the Norbertine Catholic Religious Order of Seminarians. Last summer, the city of Monona purchased this sprawling property, including leisurely lakefront access for more than $8 million with some help from the county and state. Now, a steering committee wants to your input on how to best use this space. Our newest reporter, WORT's Abigail Levens, has the story. The city of Monona is developing a master plan for the future of the San Damiano property. Earlier this summer, a steering committee in charge of the project hired a consulting company to develop a master plan and they're centering community input to decide how the heavily wooded land is used. An online public survey about the project, which closes on Saturday, consists of 22 questions in English or Spanish. They ask, among other things, your familiarity with the property, how you're likely to travel there, and what you value about the property and its future. One question in particular concerns the Frank Alice House. It asks to rate your overall appreciation of the property from very important to not important at all. Built in the, in the 1890s, this house is one of half a dozen Monona landmarks. And this, to concerned citizen Rick Bernstein, is the most important issue. He's campaigning to keep the house and says it wouldn't cost too much to restore. I think a lot of the house is still very much intact. And if you just lovingly took off some of those materials, more modern materials that were applied to the house, like the asbestos siding that's on there now, if you just very carefully and lovingly removed that, you would find a beautiful 19th century house underneath. And so I, I don't think it would take much to turn that house into something that would be as beautiful as it was originally. It really was something special and could be again. Bernstein is concerned that the house will be demolished because the steering committee thinks restoration costs will be too expensive. He says the Friends of San Damiano have named their goals for the property, which include preserving the environment and culture of the land. Friends of San Damiano President Andrew Kitzlar said the survey results will impact the city's decision about the house. 
this survey and the public input is going to be integral to the direction of, of the property. The community survey, located on the City of Monona's website, is open until Saturday, October 15th. The San Damiano Steering Committee will present the results of this survey and a timeline of the master plan process at their meeting next Tuesday, October 18th at 7 p.m. at Monona Grove High School. Reporting for WRT News, I'm Abigail Levins. It's now 6.14 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Last Sunday was the closing date of the Ain't I a Woman exhibit at the Madison Museum of Contemporary Art. The exhibit, which opened in April, was intended to highlight the work of two dozen black women, femme and gender nonconforming artists in Wisconsin. By the end of its run, though, more than half of the artists had pulled their work early in protest of the museum's handling of specific incidents and an alleged lack of support for the exhibition. Some of those artists formed a coalition called the Forward Truth Collective. The group has formed an online living archive of examples of alleged mistreatment they faced during the exhibition. On Sunday, the Forward Truth Collective and community members gathered outside Emoka to protest as the exhibit came to a close. WORT host Brian Standing was at that protest and interviewed several artists about why they were there. Here are some of those interviews. My name is Portia Cobb. I was one of the 23 artists in this triennial show called Ain't I a Woman? And I'm here today to celebrate because we did not have a planned celebration for the closing of our show. I'm one of 17 who pulled their work out um, in uh, response to the lack of care and the treatment that one artist received, which was Lalita G. When we asked them to be accountable, we were given excuses, but we were never given solid answers as to why this happened and how they would continue to protect their work and confront the situation. They tried to um, basically sweep it under the rug. And, and what would you like Momoka to do now? I would like them to, um, to be accountable. To, we, would, we would like Momoka to really fire the director bottom line. I feel that her insensitivity, the fact that they've now gone out and uh, um, gotten a, a cultural anthropologist to solve these problems, but they've never reached out to us, right? If they had money for that, why don't they have money for added security? You know, why don't they have money to um, to honor our, our work in this space, as they have other artists who are in this space. We've never had any panels, any public-facing uh, public programs. Even after the first assault on Laleda's uh, person, there should have been something planned. But it was like, okay, your work is here, it's there, it's good, and then all of a sudden we start to see um, other things happening. It was almost expected, you know. Um, so there's a whole list. I have a, a, a sheet here where 
with our facts. We've done a lot of research. We've um, had a great online um, presence on IG, and that will continue until we start to see institutional change. Uh, Not just dealing with ourselves, but also uh, minorities who work with, with and for them have been treated in a way that is despicable. So um, those things need to be addressed. Was it a hard decision for you to pull your work from the triennial? Yes, it was, because I think we were all very prideful about being a part of this show. It was the first show curated by a a young black woman um, that included 23 amazing women artists across the generation. So we were in conversation with one another. When the first artist pulled her work, Tanaki Award, it changed everything. You know, and we began questioning, like, do we need them or do they need us? So that's, it was hard. And there are people who decided to stay to stand their ground. So we've all come from different experiences in art. Younger artists said, we don't need them. We can go other places. Maybe, you know, um, older artists like myself were like, well, this was pretty damn good. It was a good place to be. But not if the work was not appreciated or not if it wasn't safe, right? Um, Or it wasn't presented in the way it needed to be presented. Or that we didn't have any kind of public-facing panels or talkbacks or anything educational that might have changed the fact that somebody could just come in here and deface work and walk out with it. And the director say, uh, call the artist and say, can they keep it? That's absurd. I don't. I don't. I haven't spoken to anybody within higher institutions that have not questioned that. You know, um, in uh, museums or galleries or whatever, uh, people are questioning like, how could that happen? And that person still have their job? It wouldn't have happened if I had said something like that. You know. So how can she still have her job? How can they still stand behind her and deny? the response, the quietness. The only time they have spoken about it is when we have press and then they won't speak to them. Do you see um, anything, any long-lasting good coming out of this? I do because I think that we, like all other protests, that you have to keep it in front of us. I think that they feel, hi, Leleda. <laughs> I think that they feel that it will be over once this is over. And so... Um, I do think, look at the response, I mean, we've gotten a lot of support by allies in the community, and um, so I'm really, and there are artists, there's another artist that I'm working with, uh, Emily Leach, who's not even here anymore, you know, so this is, this is an action, and it is an action of love and heart, and, you know, um, we want to respect the, the, we want to respect that. So what will happen after the triennial is done, what will you be doing to keep the pressure on them? We're going to keep posting through Forward Truth. You know, we're still doing our research. We're still, we're keeping present. We're going to continue to put the, the pressure on, uh, you know, Madison Museum of Contemporary Art to, to be accountable. This is not the first thing that's happened here, apparently. Um, and I think the community, the community of artists are going to begin to um, watch and to speak on. I don't live here in Madison, but I feel like I've been more connected to Madison than I have in the past. So, so. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much.
Um, so if you could just tell us your name and, and why you're here today. I'm Fatima Laster. I was the curator for the Wisconsin Triennial Ain't I a Woman exhibition. And I am here today to dual fold to, I guess, celebrate the closing of it, um, but also show my disgust with the sabotage and dismantling of it and be in support of the artists who have um, organized this and showed um, their disgust and made demands but hasn't received any respectful response or um, you know, intentionality behind showing them respect for their contribution to the space um, or the organization. So um, I, I know a lot of this uh, was precipitated by the uh, what happened to Lady G and her art, but um, and uh, did you was that a surprise to you, or were you did you sense that that you weren't getting the support you wanted from Amoka uh, prior to that event? Well, there are a couple of. <laughs> just ill-timed ironic events that happened to Lelayda. So there was first her being blocked from entering the building as a respected and commissioned artist for the triennial. And so um, the aggressiveness of the incident is surprising. The mentality behind it, no, because there are a lot of people who didn't want the show to happen and, you know, Asked why black women, why are all black women show? That's you know who's gonna want to see that. What is the art gonna look like? Is it gonna be too heavy for us to process? And so um, I have been in the building myself, and I don't. I told the lady, I don't know if they're like enough is enough of these black women coming in and out of this space. But um, the second occurrence was just clear negligence and a lack of um, demonstrated respect um, by the Emoka director and board, you know. Um, a lot of sacrifice went into the show. A lot of trust went into the show and into me. And I mean, I had very candid conversations with the, the museum up front about what I would, would and would not tolerate and hoping that this wouldn't be a tokenistic um, exhibition for them, but it turns out it was. And I also said, you know, People talk about being anti-racist and doing all these DEI initiatives, and I scoffed early on. I said, we will see if something really happens, how you respond. That's the true test if you're anti-racist and if, you know, you put into practice what you're speaking versus putting out a blank mission um, for, for legal purposes. So it sounds good. And so they show that they are racist. They show that they don't really care about the people or their work. Um, they're getting money <laughs> by this excellent turnout for this exhibition. They've had the greatest attendance that they had in years for this exhibition alone um, throughout the run of the exhibition. And so um, hopefully they, you know, their funding gets suppressed and hopefully their support gets suppressed until um, Christina Brungard, the director, is fired and until the, um, the board changes, until there's a real institutional change with the board. Otherwise, it'll happen again. They might not let black women come back in this space. <laughs> you know, they have a lot of black males who support them. Um, but, you know, we are the sacrifici sacrificial lambs for, you know, what is going on. Now, I, I know some artists um, withdrew their work from the triennial and uh, some artists did not. Um, did you have an opinion on that? And do you know, uh, did you talk to artists about how they made that decision? 
No, I I mean, I did talk with the artists and I told them whatever they want to do, I'm in support of. There's, at, at a point, there was no right or wrong decision. Um, in my opinion, you know, the museum showed negligence, but it, it was up to the artists. I removed myself from the decisions that were made, like this protest is organized for the artists, the truth um, website, that, that was all organized by the artists. I um, gave them autonomy and I stayed clear and I told them to loop me in how you need me to be looped in. And um, so, yeah, they have my support. That's why I'm here now showing support. Um, I know they would, spoke out about protecting me as well, and I was like, it will be what it is. Um, there are other people who need protections within the space, some of the staff members um, who are, who've been used to be the mask of go handle these black people, go try to um, troubleshoot this. And I, you know, I've spoken with the director, and I'm like, that's not their job. That's not our job to, to make you look like what you're not and you know, to take on the burden of being anti-racist for you. Um, I told them to be transparent. They were not transparent. I think had transparency and honesty occurred, none of this would happen right now. We couldn't say the incidents wouldn't happen, but the support and, and belief and trust and security that um, the artists no longer have with the institution or the director wouldn't have been, um, you know, dissolved. But it's dissolved. What's next for you? I mean, I've had a couple exhibitions in my space already. I have an opening exhibition um, on November 4th for two exhibitions, two different shows, I'm sorry. Um, I have a current new one up, two new ones up right now, and so I keep moving. I mean, the gift and the curse of being born black and black and female is you deal with this all the time, and so um, you can deal with it. You must keep moving because it exists, and it will exist for a while until, again, foundational change is made. But, you know, I have to move on with my life because they have dismissed us, and you can only do so much to demand respect. But they will keep hearing from these artists, I can guarantee you. <laughs> I can guarantee you that. But it's moving forward. Anything else you want to add? No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. That was WORT host Brian Standing in conversation with two artists at a protest outside of the Madison Museum of Contemporary Art on Sunday, the closing day of the Ain't I a Woman exhibit. The museum had issued two public statements in response to ongoing pressure from the artists' collective, saying they would take up a truth and reconciliation effort over the course of months and would hire a visual anthropologist to document instances of institutional racism. Sunday's protest was a precursor to another event at the end of the month. On October 28th, local artists in solidarity with the Forward Truth Collective will participate in Artists' Night, a coordinated alternative to Momoka's traditional gathering night. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, Cardinal Call producer Hope Carnop spoke with sports editor Donnie Slusher about the firing of Wisconsin Badgers football head coach Paul Christ. That's the biggest thing that still uh, kind of befuddles me and, like when I think about it, the fact that it was Wisconsin. Hello and welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. 
I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by sports editor Donnie Slusher to discuss the remainder of the Badgers season after the departure of Paul Christ. Thank you so much for joining us, Donnie. Thank you, Hope. Happy to be here. Just to start, can you fill us in on the basics of Paul Chris firing and what led up to it? Well, this entire season hasn't been great for the Badgers. Um, started out two and three. Uh, it was what, what what did it was the loss to Illinois, in which the Badgers lost at home by twenty plus points to a former coach, a guy Brett Bielema, who they do not like in Wisconsin because he left the team like about a decade ago after after, after having success. So it was. It, it, was, it was surprising, but still somewhat foreseen. It happened uh, about a day after, or the morning after the loss. Uh, they had a meeting, and then a couple hours after that, it, it, it was uh, released to the public. How have the team and other coaching staff reacted to his departure? Um, well, whenever a coach is fired, you never really know how the team's going to respond. You know, a lot of a lot of them uh, do usually just say nice things, but it did feel genuine with Coach Chris. Uh, multiple players like uh, Nick Herbig, uh, Graham Mertz, uh, even Braylon Allen, they immediately they immediately uh, went to social media. They were talking about how much they missed him at press conferences, how much how much he meant to him. So, you know, regardless of some of the recent issues, he, he did have a connection with the team. What kind of legacy do you think Chris leaves behind, either in the Graham Mertz era or even before that? Well, this season wasn't fantastic, so some of the some of the, so some of the immediate reactions were a little bit negative towards Chris. Um, you know, being 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 really thankful that that he left, but at the same time, he had, he had an amazing record. He had an amazing bowl record, plenty of great seasons. Um, the the reaction or his reputation better be positive, regardless. Um, if it isn't, then I, I, I think I think the I, th- I think that's bad on the Wisconsin fans. You know, Chris was, Chris was a great coach. Can you tell us a little bit about Jim Leonard, his position right now, and his background? Yeah, so Jim Leonard, he's from a, a place called Tony, Wisconsin, I believe, a couple hours north, kind of middle of nowhere, Wisconsin. Um, he went to uh, he was good in high school. He went to. Uh, Wisconsin as a walk-on. He was a safety, and he was a multiple-time uh, All-American, multiple-time uh, multiple All-Team Big Ten. He he leads the Badgers in a few records, I believe, like interceptions. I think I think it's the big one. Um, he's an excellent player. Uh, had a, had a pretty good um, NFL career, especially for someone who went undrafted. Then he found his way back to the team. Um, he was he was safety safety coach for a year. Um, and Chris second year and then after that he uh, Chris made him the defense coordinator job that he's had for uh, five years uh, this was his sixth and now he's the uh, interim head coach has there been speculation yet about who might take over the head coaching spot permanently well there's real speculation and then there's fake speculation the fake speculation is a bunch of people on Twitter saying ooh this guy that guy uh, Lance Lance Leipold or Leipold from Kansas he comes to mind immediately he's from Wisconsin but a few of the actual uh, speculation from people connected with the Badger program, I've heard like from a, 20, a 24-7 sports, uh, Evan Flood, he said something along the lines of that, you know, uh, Jim Leonard is supported amongst the, the decision makers at Wisconsin. Um, it is also a Wisconsin move to kind of go with the internal hire, uh, you know, someone familiar with the program. So it seems like the speculation is, is leaning towards that Jim Leonard's going to retain the job, but who knows. Can you give us a recap of how the Badgers fared this weekend against Northwestern, especially with Leonard at the helm? Yes. So after a whole week of um, a lot of sad quotes and a lot of 
a, a lot of mystery. You never really know how a team is going to do in the first game without without their head coach after such a major decision has been made. But the, the Badgers looked amazing. Um, yes, Jim Leonard was calling the plays on defense, and he was also um, responsible for head coach duties. It seemed to it seemed to uh, not be an issue in the first game, although it could be overwhelming, especially a guy who was just kind of thrown the job midway through the season. We'll see how that shakes out. It, we might not we might not uh, see a status change on that until the offseason. Graham Mertz had uh, probably had his best game of his career. You know, he had five touchdowns. He tied the school record, which he also tied in his first game ever against Illinois a couple years back. Mertz was excellent. Uh, Chimere DK was the receiver, had a career day. Um, the defense was fantastic, too. Um, the Badgers really couldn't have asked for a better for a better starting point, but then again, it was also Northwestern. They haven't won since they beat Nebraska in Week Zero in Ireland. Really weird game. So we don't really know how how qual- how quality of of a win that was, but the Badgers should be happy nonetheless. Can you give us an outlook on the rest of the season, the schools we're about to play, and what do you think the Badgers have to prove in this new era? The Badgers should look should look forward to the rest, to the rest of the year. None of the opponents are too hard. It's mostly just big Big Ten West teams. No Ohio State. Um, the biggest proving ground will be um, against Minnesota in the final game of the regular season. The Badgers have lost uh, a- after going 14 straight years without ever losing to Minnesota. They've lost like two of the past four. Minnesota Minnesota's catching up. Um, that'll be the biggest proving ground. That'll be kind of the cherry on top of the rest of the season. Of, of the season. But until then. Uh, Leonard has to prove himself with continuing to make sure the defense, you know, doesn't lack now that he's not the defense coordinator anymore and making sure that the offense survives without Chris. How do you think this firing will go down in Badger history? Do you think it's something pretty unusual for this school and this program? Oh, absolutely. That, that That's that's the biggest thing that still uh, kind of befuddles me. And like when I think about it, the fact that it was Wisconsin, if, it, if this was nearly any other school, I would, you know, shrug my shoulders and say it happens, but this doesn't happen at Wisconsin. They haven't fired a a, a football or men's basketball coach since 1995. They haven't fired a football coach since uh, 1989, I believe. That was uh, right before Barry Alvarez came in and saved the program. The coach that got fired won five games in three years or some, some something egregious. So this was, I think this will definitely go down in Wisconsin history for better or for worse. Um, this was easily the biggest move of uh, Chris McIntosh, the athletic director. Easily the biggest move of his uh, tenure so far. Um, let's see. I mean, we'll see if it, if, it, if it's an indication of, of more aggression to come or if this was just a, a, a bump in the road. Is there anything else that surprised you while following this story or anything else you think listeners should know? Um, anything else the listeners should know? The listeners, I would say, do not... Do not think too much about outside candidates because it ultimately is still Wisconsin and Jim Leonard will probably get the job anyways, even if the rest of the season isn't fantastic. Um, he's familiar. He's Jim Leonard's been loyal to the program. Uh, he could have gotten a head coaching job elsewhere. He could have gone to the NFL, but he chose to stay in Wisconsin. I think the, um, the decision makers at Wisconsin will definitely value his loyalty and I believe they will uh, compensate him. Thank you so much, Donnie, for coming on the show and keeping us updated on this story. Have to be here, Hope. Thank you. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. You can find more coverage of Chris firing and other football news under the sports menu on our website. 
Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. It's now 6.42 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. This week on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg offers an autumn update about all the animals the Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Rehab Center has taken in so far in 2022. Plus, learn about an event this weekend where you can watch Jackie release a special guest at the center back into the wild. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment. And today, we're going to give a wonderful October program update uh, because we are excited to say we're transitioning into our winter season. And our fall and winter season is pretty quiet, typically, with a lot of adult animals coming in. We see multiple cases related to toxicity or hunting, sometimes migration still on the tail end here for migratory songbirds and a lot of our raptors. They'll still be migrating through November. But I wanted to just update you on what's happening around the Wildlife Center and what's happened in the month of, you know, this last month of September and into October. So we have had um, a pretty big year, honestly. You know, we're, we're up to 2,400 patients here at our Wildlife Center. Last month, we actually admitted 162 patients. And some of our highlights were getting to release a couple of our really awesome patients. Four of them were red foxes, two of which were collared with a GPS collar by the UW-Madison Canid Project, which is super exciting. Those foxes are being tracked post-release, and we just collared another one and released that one last night. So now it's been three foxes. We got to release a couple of chimney swifts during Swift Night Out with the Feminist Bird Club. We also had our Blandings turtle that was in rehabilitation for three years released last month. 13 little spiny softshell turtles, which I talked about in previous segments. And actually in total, we've released 98 animals just in the last month alone with more ongoing here in October, including some palm warblers, some robins, a Swainson's thrush, and uh, just a couple of other small mammal species. So that's really cool. We had uh, 82, we still have about 82 active patients in our care, one of which is a bald eagle, beautiful adult bald eagle that was found down in Columbia County, had a really bad wing laceration and some bad head trauma. And the UW-Madison veterinarians with the wildlife medicine program have just been doing an excellent job with their veterinary care, keeping up with that bird just to make sure that it's able to be be, um, you know, monitored and making sure that that wound is potentially healing so that hopefully ultimately that bird might be able to be released at some point. We've also admitted some eagles uh, with lead toxicity. One was really sad this week. Unfortunately, it was a case that was too high for us to even read on our lead analyzer. It was very, very sad. Passed away shortly, just even within a day of care. And that happens so often when you've got those cases where their lead toxicity is just so high. So that is a sad case, but 
an educational case when we're talking about what can affect raptors around the world, around the U.S. Uh, lead definitely gets into the body and it just creates so many problems. It really damages the nervous system, blocks pathways for things like calcium, and it just leaches into the bone and into the cardiovascular system. So we were really sad about that. It did kind of prompt us to make a report to see how many eagles we've admitted this year. And actually, it's been 18 of them. So that's a pretty high number in comparisons to some of our previous years. And then also we got a cute little decays brown snake in uh, this week that had been hit by a bike on the bike pass. Yes, that is an injury that we see commonly in wildlife rehabilitation. And that little snake had his eye bulging out. So he is uh, definitely on our vet lists being worked with, um, but seems behaviorally otherwise normal, which is great. He's just a little guy, but he'll probably be with us here for the rest of the winter. We are also overwintering a large snapping turtle and a painted turtle that has been recovering for the last couple of months. And so those are our reptiles and amphibians that are currently here. We also have a squirrel that was admitted um, that was, uh, you know, an illegal activity case. So we, we get those from time to time. So confiscations. We also still have another fox in care that is being recovered for uh, sarcoptic mange and we're treating that actively. So hopefully that fox should be able to be moving outside here pretty soon. Um, so that way we can make sure that there's ample time for it to get accustomed to the weather as it's kind of nicer this week before it gets too cold. So we do a lot for cage setup and enrichment, making sure there's enough like hay bedding and materials in there to keep them really insulated and lots of enrichment. So that will be a fun task. And then our migratory songbirds, we, we really have gotten all of them out by the time of migration, but we do have some cedar waxwings that are still in our care. Cute ones that were kind of fall babies that have grown up and now their feather conditions are great. A good number of morning doves that keep getting released with time just as they have their feathers growing in from their, their fall molt and a number of American robins and a cardinal as well. So some really fun songbirds. Otherwise, for our raptors and specialty birds, we have a little screech owl and a great horned owl that came in with ocular trauma. And we also have a number of red-tailed hawks and great horned owls that are outside in our flight enclosures, uh, one of which are a great horned owl is going to be released this weekend, which we're very excited about. We actually have the Dane County Humane Society's annual Bark and Wine event. So if you have never been to that, it's going to be wild this year. It's actually <laughs> highlighting all about the wildlife program, which, um, it, you know, it's our 20 year anniversary and we're celebrating that as part of DCHS. There still are tickets available on the website for general admission if you want to come support the wildlife program and DCHS as a whole. Uh, it's a really awesome event where you get to wine and dine and be inside and get to to talk with us as wildlife staff and you know maybe help with some fundraising needs and things it's a uh, it's going to be great it's saturday october 15th coming up here soon so we really hope to see you there and maybe you'll enjoy some really cool pictures and some videos of the wildlife center full tours and things there's there's some really cool stuff that's going on that evening including our owl being released which is fun so those are the upcoming events. There's also things that we're doing. Uh, we're also giving some presentations around the local community this month, but just gearing up for, you know, just kind of finalizing the summer season, getting ready for a slower winter, and then focusing on things like uh, public education events and uh, our winter or more of our adult migratory, non-migratory patients here in our care. So that is an update of our patients, what we've got going on. I hope you enjoyed this segment as just kind of a recap of what our wildlife center is doing. Uh, we do rehabilitate sick, injured, and orphaned wildlife. So if you have any questions about an animal, you're not sure what to do, you can check our website for some tips at www.giveshelter.org or give us a call at 608 287 
1-800-273-3235. Otherwise, thanks for listening here on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly. This week on Radio Astronomy, host Rourke Habegger taps into the power of a black hole to investigate what makes these cosmic wonders so powerful. Welcome to Radio Astronomy. I'm Rourke, your host for today's deep dive into black holes. Black holes get made when you squeeze a bunch of mass together until the gravitational forces overwhelm everything and pull it all into a singular point, or singularity. However, this singular point generates a gravitational field that is impossible to escape after you pass a certain boundary around the singularity. You could never leave once you enter that boundary. Not even light, which is massless, could leave from within that boundary, known as the event horizon of a black hole. When talking about black holes, this term space-time singularity gets tossed around. Astrophysical black holes are defined by the event horizon around a singularity. So singularities and black holes aren't really the same thing. The cosmic censorship hypothesis suggests there are no singularities without an event horizon in the universe, i.e. every singularity is part of a black hole. Famously, there is a bet between Kip Thorne and Stephen Hawking concerning the validity of this hypothesis. Currently, naked singularities not encased by an event horizon have been shown to occur in very special circumstances, but not in general. That's the story of what goes on inside a black hole. It doesn't seem like much, and that's because it's hard to do science for a region of space-time that we can't see or test. So before we get stuck in a black hole, let's leave the event horizon alone and hang around outside of it. Black holes don't exist alone. The gravitational field extends beyond their event horizon, and that field will continue to draw mass in, eventually pulling it through the event horizon and towards the singularity. This attraction is why we see accretion disks around black holes and supermassive black holes in the centers of some galaxies. It might seem like black holes just eat mass, only taking in energy and mass. However, some clever people have come up with ways to extract energy from these hungry beasts. Let's start with the simplest one, Hawking radiation. Of course, there's nothing simple about this process. Hawking radiation occurs when a pair of photons, or a particle-antiparticle pair, gets created at the event horizon. The pair gets created by fluctuations in quantum fields, and then one of the pair gets shot out of the horizon while the other falls inward towards the singularity. This process is a way for a black hole to radiate energy away from its event horizon. It works even for a black hole completely alone in the universe. This process, discovered and theorized by Stephen Hawking, can even cause a small black hole to radiate away completely. Once we surround a black hole with matter, though, we can get another way to extract energy from it. An accretion disk can cause the black hole to launch jets outward and change the spin of the black hole. The jets provide a way to draw matter in and out of a rotating black hole's ergosphere, which is a region enclosing the event horizon of a spinning black hole, 
Within this ergosphere, energy can get extracted from the black hole along with angular momentum. That energy and angular momentum goes into producing the jet. This process is known as the Blanford-Zhnayek process, named after Roger Blanford and Roman Zhnayek. It is likely the cause of the ultra-powerful quasars we observe throughout the universe. Quasars are the jets from supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies. Hopefully you've extracted some knowledge from this discussion on black holes. I hope you have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Kristen Billings. Your reporter was Abigail Livens. Happy first day, Abigail. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal, and the radio astronomy crew. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. And Nate Weggie out and Sholly Pittman co-produced this newscast. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Find it on your favorite podcast app. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish Language News with English. Good night.